Well, good morning. Well, Happy New Year, almost. We're, we're kind of in that wonder, weird between time, right, of post-Christmas and not quite New Year's Eve yet. So here we are. So I guess it's, uh, you know, I thought about this. I thought, you know, we, there, there is this common saying that we always hear that, you know, that hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, I thought, you know, we can, we can kind of have some joy in kind of reversing that year that 2020 is about to be hindsight, right? So, yay for that. You know, many are, are finishing this year. I think of it like, like, like if you've ever seen someone finish a marathon and they're just everything in to try to get to the finish line. And I think I've, I've, uh, I've witnessed two frequent commonalities over the last few days. One is great fatigue at the challenges that this year has burdened us with, and the second is almost a desperate hope that 2021 will be better. So as we come to the end of this most unusual of years, we all want hope, right? Hope that the, that the pandemic will soon end. Hope that, that all the political and social rest will somehow ease up. Hope that our economy will get back on track. Hope that life can begin to resume some sense of whatever we remember normal was. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there is no magical reset button that will get pushed at midnight this Thursday. We have no guarantee that 2021 will be even a little better than the past year. But hear me, that doesn't mean that we can't enter the new year with hope. And by that, I mean a hope that is not dependent on a vaccine, racial unity, a new administration, or an invigorated economy. And this is the message I want to give you today. I was reading John 17 recently. I love this chapter. And for some reason, verse 3 just jumped at me. And I knew that there was something significant to be gained in meditating on these words. I'll ask you, keep your Bibles out. We're going to be jumping. We're going to kind of focus on on verse 3, but we're going to be jumping all through chapter 17. So so keep your your Bibles on your lap. The The first thought that struck me as I read this is that we all have a faulty view of eternal life. I think for most people, eternal life is, is, seems to be thought of as kind of a nonstop continuation of this life, but, but with better circumstances. Based on what people say, maybe particularly at, at some funerals you go to, eternal life begins when someone dies. And the great benefit is, is being free of the, the suffering of this life and being reunited with the ones who have gone before you. But that's not the picture of eternal life described in John 17, 3. So my goal today is to unpack the meaning of verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I pray that that in better understanding this verse, that it will, in fact, give you a real hope for the year ahead that is not contingent upon medical, political, or social change. So to do this, the three three points of my message will be to explore the, the, the source of eternal life, 
the substance of eternal life and the significance of eternal life. So let's jump in. I think before we can, before we can appreciate the substance of eternal life, we have to first look at the, at the source. John 17 is, is one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. It's the only chapter entirely dedicated to dictating a prayer of Jesus. Some would say this is the true Lord's prayer. The other one, he was teaching his disciples how to pray. He didn't pray that prayer. This is the one he prayed. In this chapter, we get to eavesdrop on the Godhead. How incredible is that? And it's essential to note the timing of this prayer. You see, this prayer ends or happens at the end, right at the end of Jesus' Passover meal in the upper room. As we look at 17 and 18, it, it comes after his final instructions to his disciples and immediately before they left for the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at his first words. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. The hour has come. This statement is huge. This is the hour that, that all of history has been pointing to. Several times in the gospel, we hear Jesus responding to his disciples by saying the words, my hour has not yet come. Many times throughout the New Testament. And now, for the first time, he says, my time has come. It's here. Everything has been leading to this hour. And why is this hour so significant? So that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. There is a world of theology in this statement. The eternal God was on the cusp of enduring horrific torture by men. And worse, the unimaginable wrath of God the Father against sinful humanity. And verse 2 says he did it for one reason. So that he might give eternal life to everyone who God has given him. I mean, surely a sacrifice this great had to be more than, than playing a stringed instrument on a cloud or living in an incredible city or, or even being reunited with your earthly family. Jesus was asking his father to glorify him so that he could glorify his father in return. And, and he was not asking the Father to, to recreate the transfiguration moment where his disciples caught a glimpse of his, his glorified body. No, he was, he was talking about a greater glory. A, gl a glory found in the most incredible act of love ever displayed in heaven or on earth. And don't miss this. It was a team effort that demonstrates the Trinity's spectacularness like nothing else. So that he may give life 
To whom? To everyone that you have given him. God the Father is not an angry curmudgeon itching to bust everyone's chops for their sinful rebellion against him. Sometimes we get that, that, that perception of him. Redemption is the Father's plan. It's accomplished by the Son, but it was designed and authorized by the Father before creation. The Father planned this to the utmost detail, including who would be the recipients of this great gift of eternal life. Listen to Ephesians 1. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Why? For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved ones. Do you see it? God the Father blessed us with every spiritual blessing by choosing us to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to be adopted through his son's work according to the good pleasure of his will. This truth is the source of eternal life. To be a follower of Christ and, and diminish eternal life to a, a materialistic wonderland or an epic family reunion is an insult of cosmic proportions to the Holy Trinity. I'm not saying that heaven won't be beautiful or we, we won't be reunited with loved ones. I'm saying that the eternal life that the Father designed and the Son accomplished is infinitely greater than we imagine. And we don't have to wait until we die to experience it. Did you hear me? Eternal life is the pinnacle of the Godhead's created design. And to begin to understand it requires us to think bigger and grander than we ever imagined. Probably could be said of us what, what Martin Luther said to his contemporary Erasmus. Your thoughts of God are too human. So it's with this perspective we come to the, maybe the great question of the day. What exactly is eternal life? Well, the biblical definition of eternal life, of course, is found in verse 3. Knowing the one true God and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. So the critical question then becomes, well, okay, then what does it mean to know God the Father and Jesus the one he sent, right? I would say the short answer is that it means becoming part of the holiest of families. The most spectacular news about the gospel is not that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, as incredible as that is. The most stunning news of the gospel is that Jesus atoned for our sins so that he could bring us into his family. Listen to John 1, 
This is, this is how John begins his gospel in verse 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This news is the DNA of eternal life. If by the will of God, as verse 13 says, you have received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you are an adopted son or daughter of God. Now, you probably won't hear this verse read a lot at a universalist church, but as as part of Jesus' prayer in verse 11 of 17, we read this. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Seven times, seven times in this chapter, we see the phrase, those whom you have given me. Believer, you have been eternally chosen by God to be part of his family. Grasp this. You are God's gift to his son, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross as the adoption cost. If that doesn't fill you with a sense of of awe and joy and humility and life, then I, I don't know, I don't know what could. This truth is the substance of eternal life. So if eternal life is knowing God, and knowing God means being being brought into his family then it would make sense that the next thing we have to explore is what does it look like to be part of God's family, right? Let's face it, family is a complicated concept for most of us, isn't it? Family is supposed to be the the core ingredient to a meaningful life. When a family works as God designed it, life is full regardless of circumstances. I mean, don't we all want to think of family like this, like this Norman Rockwell painting? Those of you who know who old enough to remember Norman Rockwell, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, in this sin-stained world, our families rarely work as designed. The breakdown of our families has led to the demise of our culture. And yet we still hold this concept of family to be, to be sacred which I would contend is evidence of God indeed putting eternity into the hearts of men, as Ecclesiastes says. So if eternal life is connected to family and knowing God, then based on the rest of John 17, it would appear that unity and oneness are at the center of what it means to be part of God's family. In Christ's prayer, we see that oneness shared by the Godhead for all eternity is now being brought to us whom God foreknew and Jesus was about to purchase with his blood. What the Father ordained and Christ accomplished is horizontal unity and life among the chosen, among the elect. And as fellow recipients of God's grace, we are to grow together and reflecting the unity and the life of the Godhead. Four times in this chapter, Jesus prays for the unity of his followers. 
want you to just, just glance at this diagram as I, as I read these, these verses. In verse 11, we see, Holy Father, protect them by your name. Protect them by your name that you have given me. Why? So that they may be one as we are one. Verse 21, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. There's the vertical. Why? So that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them glory. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you are in me so that they may be be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I don't think it's a stretch to conclude that unity is at the heart of eternal life. If we understand unity, we will go a long way to understanding eternal life. This is not a, a, a perfect illustration But I found some pictures that I think can help us grasp the concept of the unity for which Jesus is praying. These are photos I found from a recent golf tournament that featured pro golfers and their sons competing together as teams. Now, probably should be no surprise that that Tiger Woods and his son Charlie were, were the stars of the tournament. I think what these photos demonstrate to me is that unity is found in imitation. The beauty to me in these photos is Charlie is striving to imitate his father. And there should be no doubt from from his imitation that, that Charlie glories in being the son of Tiger Woods. And clearly Tiger finds great joy in his son's reflection of him. Big cat and little cat, right? Now, I, I didn't watch the tournament, but apparently Charlie is a pretty remarkable golfer for an 11-year-old boy. And I imagine that's partly due to shared DNA, but mostly it probably has a lot more to do with the fact that Charlie has spent countless hours by his dad's side on the golf course or on the driving range or on the putting green. He watches his dad intently. He listens to his dad's instructions religiously. Now imagine if Tiger had five or more sons and they all imitated him the way that Charlie does. Wouldn't that be a cool picture? I have to think this is kind of like what Jesus has in mind in his prayer. Please listen carefully now. Hear me. Our unity as followers can only come in our shared imitation of our Heavenly Father. Listen to that again. I think it's significant. Our unity as followers, as a church family, as believers as a whole, can only come in our imitation of our Heavenly Father. When together we strive to live as He loved and love, live as He lived and love as He loved, only then will we experience unity with God and with each other. That is compelling to a lost world. When his mission becomes our mission and his passion is our passion, unity flourishes and the souls of men go from death to life. And yes, it is there that we experience eternal life. 
Just like the center of Tiger and Charlie's imitation is golf, the heart of our reflection of our Heavenly Father is a desire that the world may know that Jesus is the Christ and sent from the Father for the salvation of the souls of men. Look at verse 8 in chapter 17. Now they know, he's talking about his disciples, now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. The mission of Jesus was that his disciples would know that he was the Son of God sent from the Father. And what is Jesus' desire and prayer for us? Well, we just read it. Look again at verse 21 and 23. 21. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Why? May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Sound familiar? Look at verse 23. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Here it is again. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Why he wants the unity. Jesus had a singular mission on earth, and he has tasked us with the same mission. And that mission is to make known to all who might hear that, in fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have what? Eternal life. So what then is our mission? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Here is where we find the substance of eternal life. Do you have a passion for what Jesus was passionate about? Do you have a compassion for the souls of men the way Jesus does? Could anyone rightly call you a friend of sinners? Do you yearn to, to feed the homeless, to visit the prisoners, to clothe the poor, to pray for the sick, to help the weak, to give hope to the downcast, to care for the widow and orphan, and tell them all of the great news you possess that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. These are the traits he wants you to imitate individually and corporately. Do you want to have the secret to having hope, joy, and peace in 2021? Stop being as concerned and passionate about the issues that the secular world is passionate about and the concerns that they have and start being more passionate about what stirs the heart of our Savior. Eternal life is found in knowing God and by imitating God. So before I close, I want to take just a moment to reflect on the significance of eternal life. We've talked about the source. We've talked about the substance. 
I said this morning that my stated goal was to give you hope for the new year that is not dependent on a vaccine or a new president or social change or any other human effort. Hope for the new year is found in knowing God and imitating God. To the degree that, that we give ourselves to this great cause that we just discussed, our hope, peace, and joy, hear me, are bulletproof to the brokenness of this world. It doesn't matter what happens in 2021. I love these words of Spurgeon. Got to have a Spurgeon quote in a sermon, right? <laughs> well, listen to this. A man with God, you may strip him, but he is clothed in the light of God. A man with God, you may shut him up in prison, but he is perfectly at liberty, for his spirit soars into the immensities. A man with God, he may be afflicted with a hundred diseases at once, but he has the best of all health, even the sanity of his soul. Yes, to know the only true God is to get where life is life, to get into eternal life. Not mere existence, but into that which is worthy to be called life indeed. Of course, that's just a reflection of Paul's message in 2 Corinthians 4, right? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carried in the body the, bo the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And you will be surprised at the hope and the peace that you possess. Or as God calls it, eternal life. The last question I want to address is how we become the people I've described today. And my answer would be the same way that Charlie Woods is becoming more and more like his dad on the golf course. And that is time together and practice. By his loving kindness... God has given us at least four resources by which we can spend time with him and grow in our imitation. He has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us. He's given us the gift of prayer to communicate with him. He's given us the gift of his word to instruct us. And he's given us the gift of the church so we don't have to do all of this alone. Hear me, you will only be effective in knowing and imitating God to the degree that you immerse yourselves in all of these God-given resources. Concerning prayer, J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, said this. He said, people who know their God are before anything else people who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come into expression is in their prayers. He goes on to say, prayer is to be on speaking terms with God. It is to be so reconciled to him that you have no dread of him, no bondage and fear when you think of him. You then regard God as your best friend whom you love and in whom you delight, to whom you talk as naturally as you talk to a friend or father into whose bosom you pour your griefs and into whose heart you tell your joys. Imagine the quality of your life if your time in prayer looked like this. Oh, that we would grow as imitators of God 
through our zeal for prayer. Amen? Secondly, we know and learn to imitate God by reading, meditating, and memorizing his holy scriptures. You ever think about this? We don't need scripture in heaven. We'll be with him face to face. Scripture is for now. He's given us his word now to light our path, to guide us in all righteousness. Prayer and the word of God are the tools and it is by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the community of the saints or the church that we, that we build these tools, that we use these tools that lead us towards eternal life. You know, this past year, one of my greatest joys was seeing such a large percentage of our body participate in the CBR Journal program. Man, talk about unity. Many of us join thousands of believers worldwide in reading and meditating on the same scriptures each day. I was so thrilled to hear our people discussing in their small groups and through text and email the things that had encouraged them in the readings for that day. If you didn't use this program last year, I would, I would strongly encourage you to consider joining the many in our body who do. There is such a great synergy of learning and accountability found in reading Scripture together. Now, there's many ways to implement this program, which we will talk about in the days ahead. I'll tell you, if you do want to get a head start, we do have journals. It's not a sales pitch, but we do have journals available outside in the lobby when you leave. So in conclusion, as you've heard, neither I nor anyone can guarantee you that life in 2021 will not be as difficult or even more challenging than 2020. But what I can confidently tell you is that God has graciously offered us what he calls eternal life. And this life is not merely a feeling or a place you go when you die. If by grace you are a blood-bought child of God, then eternal life is a quality that you possess right now. And it's not dependent on anything but God's presence in your life. Let me close with one more thought by J.I. Packer. If above all you are striving to be like he, if his spirit in you is photographing the image of God upon your nature so that the old image which he gave to Adam but which was effaced by sin is being reproduced in you by the Holy Spirit, then you know the only true God. And this, dear friends, is eternal life. My beloved church family, may this be your sole resolution for 2021 and the rest of your life. May God be praised. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you have, you have not left us alone. That eternal life is not, not some ethereal thing that we, we look forward to and hope for maybe when we die. God, you have come that we may have life and have it more abundantly now and in eternity. This is the appetizer. This is the glimpse of, of what it will be like in heaven. 
And the great joy of heaven is not walking on streets of gold or, or being reunited with our loved ones. Our, our, the great beauty of heaven is being reunited with you, our Savior. God, may we, may we long for this. May we yearn for this. And we, may we not wait until heaven to do that. God, give us a, a zeal to, to love you, to know you, to imitate you. May the world see hope and peace in us as we, as we are impervious to the concerns of this world as we strive to live out our mission to proclaim this incredible news that you have given us that God came into the world who took on flesh to save sinners like you and me. God, may this be our source of hope. May this be our source of life. God, may this be the thing that those of us today who hear these words, may we experience this incredible gift that you've given us, eternal life. We pray this in your name. Amen.